Hello, and welcome to this installment of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf, a podcast celebrating recent work by faculty members in the arts and sciences at Columbia University. I'm Constantine Lignos. Our next episode this season, celebrating recent work by Bruce Robbins, is drawn from a panel brought together on February 23rd, 2023, to discuss his recently published book, Criticism and Politics, A Polemical Introduction. Bruce Robbins is Old Dominion Foundation Professor in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. He is the author of Secular Vocations, Intellectuals, Professionalism, Culture, Perpetual War, Cosmopolitanism from the Viewpoint of Violence, and, most recently, The Beneficiary. His works are mainly in the areas of 19th and 20th century fiction, literary and cultural theory, and post-colonial studies. Here is Bruce Robbins. I was provoked into writing this book by Rita Felsky saying in the limits of critique that we've done enough talking about power, it's time to start talking about love. And I said in exchange with her, a flower can be beautiful. The photograph of a corpse of a child on a Syrian beach, beautiful or not, will have to be discussed in other terms. I was told by the press that I was talking too much about Felsky and I should cut her out as completely as I could. But what happened in the course of writing it is it started as a rant and it kind of turned into an introduction because I sort of had to think about what a terrible idea, thinking about what makes you angry and thinking maybe it shouldn't. It, it turned into a much more introspective thing than it was meant to be. There is an existential case for politics. You look around at the world, you see what state it's in, you think, okay, am I happy just doing my job as it is and leaving it at that? I mean, maybe not, you know, since I only have one go round on earth. But I don't make that case actually in the book at all. What the book does is show or try to show that there are kind of political concerns already embedded in the discipline, which means, you know, they're not the most revolutionary concerns in the world because the discipline can't be revolutionary. It just, by definition, it just can't. So the book has a historical premise. The premise is that criticism is still fighting the culture wars of the last century, which is to say, still thinking through what it has inherited, for better or worse, from the 60s movements, mainly on behalf of race, gender, sexuality, etc. So not so much class, because that's just a historical fact, maybe a sad one, but a historical fact about the 60s movements. One sentence I was unable to take out said that Felsky's complaint about political criticism being negative, and that's kind of a theme of hers, how negative it is. This has like never been true. And I don't know, people should be called when they say things that are just not true. That that belongs next to Vice President Spiro Agnew's famous characterization of the liberals during the midterm elections of 1970 as, and I quote, nattering nabobs of negativism. So this is possibly a darling that should have been murdered. These days, with all the ridiculous but politically potent talk of critical race theory and books that our children need to be protected from, and all of this moving from primary education to secondary education to tertiary education, I don't know. It seems to me that there's a lot of visible continuity over the last 50 years, and we don't want to be self-aggrandizing, but it feels to me like what's happening in literature departments is actually part of a larger political situation, a real part. Political criticism is widely accused of being negative criticism. This negativity is often blamed blamed on the heritage of the 60s movements. The charge is easy enough to refute a great deal, think about it, of entirely positive or appreciative criticism. 
has been enabled and encouraged by so-called identity politics, perhaps not seen as appreciative criticism, only because many of the works that are now being appreciated are associated with women and minorities. But the logic is not entirely wrong. Movements on behalf of race, gender, and sexuality demanded greater representation in the name of an expanded democracy. Reasonably enough, they are not always respectful of a past in which they and theirs have gone unrepresented or worse. But methodologically speaking, the most influential legacy of the 60s, as I see it, was the imperative to put texts into their historical contexts. So one major proposition in the book is that difference as a motto of identity turns into differences as the content of history, the content of history seen as differences. This is felt correctly as a political move from the perspective of those who assume that the great texts of the past are timeless, contextualization like this is going to look like negativity, like tearing those texts down, judging the past by the moral standards of the present, pushing it away, showing it disrespect. I myself do not argue that history should be seen as entirely composed of differences, as if a text written on Thursday can have nothing in common with the text written on Tuesday. You were supposed to laugh at that. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try to explain that to my... I try to work through this conundrum by suggesting that whether putting text in context counts as a put down or not will depend on one's conception of history. I do permit myself some belligerence at the expense of a conception of history that is organized around melancholy, a melancholy that from the point of view of the 60s movements denies the progress toward greater democratic representation that women and minorities seem to have won from 1970 on and that ought to be a matter, if not of complacency, at least of a certain satisfaction. So I sort of borrowed from the historian of anthropology, Jim Clifford, who is talking about the discipline of anthropology, the sort of salvage or rescue paradigm, the idea that culture is always on the verge of extinction, and the scholar has to be the heroic rescuer of a culture that is always at the point of dying. That seemed to me so powerful when he first said it, and I thought, it also sounds really familiar, familiar to me at least from my graduate education. It was kind of a reason why people didn't pay much attention to contemporary literature, didn't need to be rescued, right? People liked it. In the 50 years between 1970 and 2020, the period discussed in the book, Matthew Arnold was replaced, so I argue, by Michel Foucault as the single most foundational thinker for the humanities, the figure outside the discipline, outside all disciplines, who explained to many of us why we were doing what we were doing inside our disciplines. So I argued that there was a lot more commonality than might appear between the two figures and between what culture meant to Arnold and what it meant to the 60s movements. One obvious commonality between Arnold and Foucault, which I take some time over, is their shared anti-progressivism. And there are less obvious ones. Fans of Arnold have often suggested that what he was really proposing was a certain tact or poise or sensibility. And his detractors have replied that this sensibility based as it is around complexity and hesitation, commits his followers to political do-nothingism. Thinking through the legacy of the emancipatory movements of the 60s, and borrowing a little bit from my friend Amanda over here, I came to the conclusion, one, that they too promulgated a certain tact or poise as one upshot of their lessons, that their sensibility also demanded a set of hesitations, and most surprisingly, that it was these very hesitations that define one thing that's valuable and lasting in their politics. One polemical narrative that I try to answer in the book, polemically, goes like this. Once upon a time, criticism was central to its culture. Now, however, it gets no respect. And the reason is 
that it has abandoned its core principles, whatever those principles might be. Under examination, the most questionable thing about this narrative is the premise that once upon a time, criticism, in fact, had a mission that won it respect in the eyes of those around it. But if that premise is granted, then it follows, or so I argue, that a very similar case can be made for an organic role played by criticism vis-a-vis -vis the democracy expanding movements of the 1960s. The 60s movements themselves were extremely skeptical that intellectuals could represent anyone, let alone be organic to any collectivity, whether based on class or not. So in bringing forward Edward Said and Stuart Hall as, I think, organic intellectuals, helping to organize an as yet non-existent democratic coalition, I'm also arguing with the 60s. I'm certainly arguing with Foucault, who refused to think about governing only about not being governed or not being governed like that pointing. But that's finally where the book's belligerence goes, toward the ultimate goal of our side learning to govern and to govern differently. Once again, that was Bruce Robbins on his new book, Criticism and Politics. Next, we'll hear from Amanda Anderson, Andrew W. Mellon Professor of Humanities and English and Director of the Cogut Institute for the Humanities at Brown University. She is the author, most recently, of Character, Three Inquiries in Literary Study, written with Rita Felsky and Toral Moy, Psyche and Ethos, Moral Life After Psychology, and Bleak Liberalism. Here is Amanda Anderson. At the heart of Bruce Robbins' wide-ranging and thought-provoking book is, I think, a two-part claim, more earnestly than polemically offered. First, that the social movements of the 60s set in motion the forces that continue to define the politics of criticism at the present day. And second, that the politics of the 60s also offer a promising model in relation to some of the excesses or debilitating tendencies that animate the contemporary literary field. In that sense, it is not merely a historical argument, which of course it is, but a generational one and a normative one. I actually found the book quite capacious in tone and mode, only punctually polemical in the end, and in most cases quick to acknowledge the more genuine motives or unavoidable conditions which might lead to positions Robbins differs from. And this is in keeping with the aim of the book, which is to persuade, not alienate, to bring on board, not repudiate. One of the most interesting examples of this is in the close affinity in the book between the terms intersectionality and cosmopolitanism. Robbins is trying to bridge certain differences in the field, though with a specific aim, which may make it hard to convince all readers. Perhaps it's best to begin with a brief sketch of what Robbins is arguing against, and then move toward a consideration of what he is arguing for. For me, fundamentally, criticism in politics is calling out a certain entrenched oppositionality in the field, one whose prehistory Robbins traces from early cultural critiques of industrialism in the 19th century through to radical critiques of power and instrumentality that have characterized the field since the 70s. These ideologically disparate frameworks all share a critique of capitalist modernity. There is thus throughout the history of the field then a kind of oppositional distance that defines the critic, one that stems from the dual object of the field, not simply literature, but also culture. Robbins reminds us in this context that Arnold's The Function of Criticism at the Present Time contains no literary objects of analysis, 
and that its most memorable act of reading, dwelling on the phrase, rag is in custody, is of a newspaper text. This fundamental oppositionality is also in Robbins's account of affectively inflected, first as melancholy in the conservative form, and then as a kind of pessimism, though Robbins does not use this word. It presents instead as permanent opposition. And here we see a key judgment made. Robbins writes, quote, a permanent opposition, strictly speaking, is not a politics. The fundamental premise of politics is action oriented toward a different future. Robbins applies a kind of double lens when discussing more recent and contemporary movements. On the one hand, pointing out problems, and on the other, aiming to reframe and rename positions or practices so that they align with the aspirational force of the politics being advocated. One key example here would be the discussion of intersectionality, which he reframes in its most promising versions as a kind of reprisal of 60s politics. Robbins argues that in order to cohere as a movement among many different interest groups, the politics of the 60s required a certain disinterestedness, self-abstraction, self-critique. This he sees as the best potential of intersectionality, not in those versions in which it becomes, as he puts it, a way for one to score the most points in an oppression derby, these are his words, but when it serves to promote practices of ongoing self-scrutiny, capacious understandings of combined vulnerabilities and privileges, and a more open-ended sense of identity and selfhood. Beyond this, it can become the basis for ongoing adjudication of interests in the political sphere. Ultimately, Robbins wants to revitalize Gramsci's conception of the organic intellectual and any effective present-day concept of the organic intellectual or organic academic must not only critically engage, but also move beyond questions of identity, addressing issues of environmental catastrophe, for example, or militarism or democracy. Democracy emerges as the key normative ideal in the text, and it is the central political ideal, the one in relation to which all the other aspirations ultimately point. It forms the basis for an emphasis on the importance of creating a world in which it is possible to govern differently. In order to support this overarching aim, Robbins insists that a certain democratic aspiration lies behind many of the most energetic and consequential developments within the humanities and the university. Notably, the growth of key advocacy-based programs, women's studies, African-American studies, ethnic studies, queer studies. In Robbins' account, the advocacy-based programs are challenging historical forms of injustice that violate democratic norms and rules. Beyond this, he characterizes the work being done across these fields and in the humanities as a whole as the adjudication of contesting claims to representation and contesting versions of collective self-fashioning. Thus, the practices of the university are characterized as a form of democratic contestation and emergent fields are coterminous with movements outside the university or the force behind them that fight for civil rights and democratic inclusion. On the one hand, I want to say, yes, this makes sense. But on the other, as Robbins himself discusses, there is a persistent oppositionality that makes this description feel not true to the self-understanding of many of these constituencies within the university. The university has itself become a target for many within the university. 
with calls to decolonize the university or the humanities or specific fields. And insofar as many of the fields mentioned do not believe in the progressive power of institutions, this feels like a kind of willful reframing of the situation. Robbins knows this actually and admits it in the more polemical moments of the text, as for example, when he sharply points out that the field is anti-progressive except when it comes to characterizing its own scholarship. And this leads me to remark one feature of Robbins's own normative rhetoric, an employment of a mode of description that does not mark itself as redescription. He goes in and out of this mode, but at moments it is striking in its effects. And on balance, I think it's effective and thought provoking as an alternative to more apodictic normative critique. By collecting all of the claims for inclusion on the part of different groups as fundamentally tied to an underlying understanding of and fight for democratic conditions, both the entrenched oppositionality and the internal divisions of the academic left are insufficiently acknowledged. Yet another way to approach this might be to consider what precisely are the keywords of the emergent politically affiliated programs if democratic inclusion is not to the fore in their self-representation. Decolonization is certainly one that has had a lot of play. There are many others, and it seems important to analyze the frameworks in which these movements take place and present themselves. Speaking of nomenclature, I wonder, do the current practitioners within the humanities see themselves adequately reflected in the words criticism and critic? What work are these words doing relative to other forms of self-conception in the field at present, including worker, scholar activist, teacher, and engaged scholar? What do academics identify as quay academics? What do I want to say in response to you, Amanda? I remember when you were insisting that Foucault was a crypto-normativist. And I remember resisting a little bit, and then little by little, my resistance just dissolved. And I thought, Amanda is right about this. And I'm going to come out of the closet as a normativist myself. And this has happened in large part, thanks to you. And I recently taught the sort of what is critique essay by Foucault, in which he says critique means not wanting to be governed like that, with a, a deictic, in other words, pointing at how he doesn't want to be governed, but unwilling to put in any words what he doesn't want, because to put it in words would be to provide the standard by which it's judged, the norm by which it's judged, so that he would be, in fact, governing simply by laying out the norm by which he's criticizing what he's criticizing. And I thought to myself, okay, I've had it with that. You know, and even if democracy is not the ideal term here, and of course it's not, I only say it in the sense that it's something that, you know, needs to be democratized. So what do I want? I certainly want a democratizing of democracy, an extension of democracy, geographically and socially. As somebody who's been talking about cosmopolitanism forever, one of the things I think is that you don't have a democracy if the people you're bombing don't get to vote on whether they should be bombed. Next, we'll hear from Jack Halberstam, professor of gender studies and English at Columbia University. Halberstam is the author of seven books, including Skin Shows, Gothic Horror and the Technology of Monsters, In a Queer Time and Place, The Queer Art of Failure, Gaga Feminism, Sex, Gender and the End of Normal, and a short book titled Trans, A Quick and Quirky Account of Gender Variance. Here 
is Jack Halberstam. The polemic has to have the premises tested a little bit. So let me apply some pressure to a few places, some of the places that Amanda has actually mentioned, and then let's see where we are and we can have a debate because that's the point of a polemic. Let's put some stuff out there and see where it goes. The good news is that this is a very elegant book, a very readable book. It's charming, it's funny, it's masterful in its account of the role of criticism as it has developed, as we've heard, out of the social movements of the 1960s. Bruce tells us that the, in the 1960s, these social movements set out to transform not just structures of governance, but epistemological systems, concepts of archives and canons, and notions of expertise. In the wake of the 60s, new radical intellectuals wanted simply to reinvent the university. In English departments in particular, which skewed white and male then, and still do now, students like Bruce, and then 10 years later like me, learned how to deploy close readings to confirm that the canonical reading lists were in fact made up of simply the best and the brightest material produced over time. Context was irrelevant to these close readings because the text simply generated all that you needed to know. Conveniently for the white guys pushing this method, we didn't need to engage the messy variants of race, class, gender, and sexuality. The poem we were told by Wimsatt and Beardsley and others is primary, all other material is extraneous. And I found this bewildering in grad school. I really did. I just had no idea what we were actually doing. Challenges arose to this formless pursuit of beauty, according to Bruce, and in the process, new motives emerged for criticism writ large. For Bruce, these motives had to do with politics in some way, but for me, I feel that he's never quite explicit about what politics and what ways. As we all know, in the wake of the 60s, some critics sought to expose the white and middle class power that the university both represented and consolidated. You can think of various histories of the novel by Nancy Armstrong and others that do exactly that. Others insisted that relations must be crafted in terms of communities beyond the university. Still others insisted that the literary has to share space with other cultural objects that perform different work in the society at large. Many people sought to link critique to larger political struggles, and as critical race theory, queer theory, and black studies emerged as forceful currents in English departments, new generations dug in again to an argument with those forceful currents about formalism and disinterested engagement. And so the stage is sort of set for a standoff between the formalists and the disinterested people and the people who emerge out of the programs that Amanda is calling advocacy programs, but that I will just call radical political currents of thought. Bruce pays re really careful attention to these histories of criticism and, and offers insightful notes on close reading, historically specific readings, histories of the impact of race and class and sexuality and gender upon those readings, and accounts of shifts in power as a consequence. But the history of critique isn't all that he comes to offer. This is a polemic, and in many ways it is aimed firmly at the present day. And for evidence of that, just look at the debates that Bruce is now having with John Guillory in the pages of the Chronicle and elsewhere. This is clearly about who are we now, what are we to become? What should the critic do? Criticism and politics, in a way, as much as it's a polemic, it's also a defense, a defense of critique from those who are intent upon replacing it and a defense of the version of criticism in which he believes, and that is not completely different from the versions that he was taught when he was in college. Now, the person who he most vigorously opposes in this polemic, as we've just heard, is Rita Felsky, who, in the limits of critique and elsewhere, has made a career out of passive 
aggressively asking for the terms of engagement in literary studies to shift from questions about power to questions about love. Why passive aggressive? Because people who want to talk about love are actually talking about power. They're just doing it in a softer voice to make it sound nice. Robin's decimation of Felsky, he calls her analyses political correctness baiting, are more than welcome. But Bruce's book is at the same time a defense of certain forms of expertise, certain canons of knowledge, and at some level, a defense of progress, of getting somewhere, of optimistic building, of new forms of governing, of English, of world literature, and most importantly, of the relevance of the critic. Now, inevitably, in this narrative, there are heroes and there are goats. The goats include Felsky, more love, less criticism. Waichi Dimmock collapses radically distinct histories into one unified narrative. Michel Foucault, no political solutions, only critique, and only a sense of not wanting to be governed like that. Heroes include Matthew Arnold, surprisingly to me. Fred Jameson, less surprising. Lionel Trilling, huh? Edward Said, Stuart Hall, and no surprise, the darling of cisgender lefties, Andrea Longchu. The other characters in the narrative, and this is a narrative, it's a good story, it really is, it's a compelling story that Bruce tells, step forward every now and then from a, I think, a kind of unfortunate catch-all category, women and minorities. Women and minorities, he tells us, have been asked to suppress their specific differences in order to meet the aesthetics demand of universality, which is why you can't have disinterestedness there. And then again, women and minorities make up a new set of political agents ready to contest the proper objects of literary study. And then again, women and minorities push for greater academic representation or serve as rebels banging at the gates of cultural literacy, demanding to be included. Now, this is in keeping with the story that Robbins wants to tell us about the push away from traditional critique towards new versions. But unfortunately, for this reader at least, the people gathered under the heading of women and minorities never make a meaningful impact on this category of criticism itself. They offer the charges of elitism. They propose the changes to the canon in order to change the whole politics of representation. They insist loudly, militantly, and successfully that we must change the university. Women and minorities, we learn, are in fact the very agents of change of the change that Bruce is describing. And yet they never enter the narrative as critics. They are not the critics in the genealogical order that unfolds throughout the book. So moving towards a conclusion, I think we can ask, and I want to ask, what does Bruce want? This is a reasonable question by the end of the book. Does he just want women and minorities to be pleased and stop with the grievances? Quote, there is no doubt that groups with a grievance are now much better represented in the discipline than they were half a century ago. To be precise, they are participating in the university's governance. What began as a rebellion, he says, is now an administration. That's Rod Ferguson's point, end quote. Does he want us to all get along and join forces on behalf of figuring out a better future for democracy? Sort of. But what democracy? Run by whom? What better forms of governance does he imagine? How would these forms be bolstered and supported by the continued practices of the critics, which by the end of the book and in the absence of real engagement of the works of queers and people of color look remarkably like the old ones? Bruce ends with Stuart Hall, to whom he attributes a sense that the world needs to be governed differently. But Hall should have been the beginning. We should have begun with Hall, not ended with him. Hall is just the beginning of new forms of critique that have animated the university since the 1960s. That Bruce ends with Hall indicates some kind of unwillingness to recognize that while he and John Guillory and Mark Leela duke it out in the mainstream organs of intellectual life, saying critique is political. Well, it shouldn't be. It's too political. It's not political enough. It's only political because of these identity politics, kids. 
It's dead. It's alive. It's living dead. It's well. It's good. In the meantime, critique has moved on. I think I would never, on the basis of my skill set and generational placement, try to point a finger at where the action is. I'll leave that to youngsters like you. It's just not something I would be good at if I tried to do it. So I didn't try to do it. If it inspires people like you to say, this is where I think the action is, great. I'm not going to apologize for ending with Stuart Hall. In some ways, he's a, still, his memory is an admonition to, to people. I fixate a little bit more than I should maybe on this one moment in a cultural studies conference in which he's asked whether the way he's talking suggests that he actually believes in progress. And he says, you know, now that you mention it, I do. And I think that's a difference between feeling that you belong to a movement and feeling that you're making a career. I mean, Stuart Hall never wrote anything, anything, without feeling that what he was doing was for a movement. He almost never signed a piece of writing on his own without collaborating with people, I mean, institutionally and individually. It's like, he just always talked and thought, I'm doing this for a reason which is not institutional, and it's certainly not my career. I admire Stuart Hall for establishing what I think would be a very useful standard, even if intermittently that we could kind of apply to what we do, just to, you know, to, to say there are bigger things at stake than like, you know, getting published or, you know, getting a promotion or whatever it is. I mean, there's a lot at stake. And I don't think there's anybody quite like Stuart Hall from that point of view. That is definitely where I want this to end. You know, and I think to connect this back to Gramsci and organic intellectuals and traditional intellectuals, one of the things that Guillory said to me is that academics are traditional intellectuals, they're not organic. And one of the things I thought about that is, yeah, and like traditional intellectuals, the way Gramsci describes them, they, that is we, our, our first move is to think of ourselves as independent or, and autonomous not belonging anywhere, which is a mistake, according to Gramsci, even for traditional intellectuals, because they kind of serve interests that they're not saying they serve. And I've found that one thing you're up against, if you do talk politics explicitly in an academic setting, is people kind of pull back, to, you know, that's not who we are. We are autonomous. We are independent. Don't talk to me about all that stuff from com that comes from outside. It's not a surprise, I suppose, institutionally, that that's a fact about the institutional space that we inhabit. I think it's a real thing to push, push, push back against. I also think that, yes, it's a defense of the profession because I think that there's a lot of feeling that's kind of on my side in this. That's one of the reasons why I couldn't be more belligerent. I was thinking, I think people sort of agree with me to maybe a surprising extent, to a pleasant extent. And that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Bruce Robbins and all of the panelists who were present at the event. My thanks to you as well for listening. Once again, today's episode was Celebrating Recent Work by Bruce Robbins. The title of his new book is Criticism and Politics, A Polemical Introduction. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>